0: Well, I remember when I bought my very first car. Do you remember what car was your first car? Mine was this silver Honda Civic, a four-door. It was love at first sight. And I could not wait to have my very own vehicle. I couldn't wait for the day where I would take my hard-earned money and exchange it for that set of car keys where I would drive away and have a car of my very own. Now, I'm the kind of person who enjoys doing a lot of research and making the calculations when it comes to making a purchase like that. And so I thought I fully understood what owning this car would cost me. I had considered the purchase price calculated the cost of insurance, and even thought about what it might cost me in gas each week. But despite my eagerness to lay out that initial investment, my infatuation with car ownership, it began to waver over time as I discovered the ongoing cost of keeping that car running right. The time and the money that I had to sacrifice in order to maintain it you see, despite my careful planning, maintenance was not something that I had factored into this commitment because it was something that I never really had to think about before. When I lived at home, I drove my parents' cars. And though I might chip in for gas every once in a while, maintenance wasn't something I had to think about because they always took care of it. But now that I owned my own vehicle, I came face-to-face with the reality of how much this relationship really required of me. First, there was regular or routine maintenance. Things like oil changes or checking the fluids. This happened every 5,000 kilometers. And then there were things like tire rotation and belt replacements and you know things like that that my mechanic told me were, were called preventative maintenance. Preventative maintenance meant that it was going to prevent something bad from happening or more costly from happening, so it was better to get ahead of it. And finally, there were things classified as urgent maintenance, like, rep- like replacing the brake pads that had worn out beyond their limit because of constant use. Now, this was urgent because if it wasn't taken care of right away, my relationship with the car would come to an abrupt end. Without taking immediate action, I could be involved in a collision that would cause such significant damage that the car would not be able to be driven without a serious overhaul, or perhaps it might be written off altogether. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself that I was pretty naive to enter into vehicle ownership without knowing the cost of ongoing maintenance, or perhaps you're just sitting there thinking, what does this have to do with today's message? Well, many people today enter into relationships with others just like I did with my first car without considering the maintenance cost and what's even more devastating than junkyards full of written-off cars because of neglectful owners is a world that is full of broken relationships because we have failed to nurture and care those we loved. Just as I was happy to fork over my money to purchase that Honda Civic, we're often eager to make the initial investments into a relationship, but perhaps we can also be a little naive about what it will cost to maintain them, or perhaps even after a little while. Some of that excitement of those early days, it wears off, and we find that we are no longer willing to pay the price. But if we're going to have healthy relationships, the kinds that Jesus wants his followers to have, then today's passage shows us that it requires regular maintenance. These are the words of Jesus. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black, All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning's message is about righteousness. It's about right relationships. This is not just a sermon on divorce or breaking our promises. Why? You may wonder when that's what it seems that this passage is talking about. Well, it's because the Sermon on the Mount in which these seven verses are found in is all about righteousness. Jesus speaks two sentences here on divorce and remarriage, and he touches on it because it's important. However, it's not the main thing, and and neither is making oaths. So we're going to follow Jesus' lead this morning. We're going to speak on divorce because he does. We're going to talk about keeping our word because it's important but we're going to do our best to keep them within the context of the main thing that Jesus is talking about. And his main thing was the kingdom of heaven. And what those who enter the kingdom of heaven, what their lives look like, how they live. And he, but we're going to do our best to keep them within that context. And Jesus talks about what sets them apart. And the two things that we've talked about throughout this entire series on the Sermon on the Mount that, keep, that sets citizens of the kingdom of heaven apart are two things, repentance and righteousness. And so we have to keep these two things on the forefront of our mind today and as we continue to go throughout this sermon series, repentance and righteousness. Now, repentance, we've said, is turning away from our own ways, going our own ways, and turning and following Jesus. He is the leader of our lives now. He is the Lord. That's repentance. And righteousness in Scripture is ultimately about being in a right relationship, a right relationship with God, with others, with ourselves, and with the creation. So these are the two things that we keep on the forefront of our minds, repentance and righteousness. But we also have to remember what Jesus is doing in this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount. He is contrasting the scribal law with its focus on external activities with his interpretation of God's law and Jesus' emphasis on our internal attitudes. You see, Jesus' focal point is our hearts because Jesus came to transform you and I from the inside out. In the last couple of weeks, we have seen how Jesus goes beyond the commands, don't murder, and don't commit adultery. And he tells his followers that they are to deal ruthlessly with their anger and their lust. Because that is at the source of the problem. In today's passage, Jesus corrects two more scribal law misinterpretations of God's word, dealing with divorce and oaths, or making promises, I want to talk about the second of these two principles first. Swearing oaths or making promises that Jesus refers to in verses 33 to 37. Jesus alludes to the scribal law here saying, Again you have heard it said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. Now there are several Old Testament passages that refer to swearing falsely or lying as well as the responsibility a person has for fulfilling promises that they have made. And so there should be a couple up on the screen behind me. Now, the intention of these commands in Scripture is to prevent people from lying or from giving false testimony, and also to discourage people from making promises, but then turning around and breaking those promises, But the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' time, they actually misinterpreted these commands. They emphasized the wrong part of these verses. You see, the part that they emphasized in making these vows was the part that says, in the name of the Lord. Taking this to mean that the problem, they thought, wasn't actually lying or not fulfilling your promise, but profanity. The fact that you did it in the name of the Lord. You took his name in vain. Theologian John Stott, he says, so the Pharisees developed an elaborate set of rules for taking vows. They listed which formulas were permissible, and they added that only those formulas, which included the name of the Lord, were binding or unbreakable. One need not be so particular, they said, about keeping vows in which God's name had not been used. So a person might swear by heaven or say that if they're lying every hair, may every hair on my head turn gray, right? And these statements were intended to guarantee that what they were saying was true or that they were going to keep their word. Today, we might hear someone saying something to the effect of, I swear on my mother's life. Or I swear on her grave. And this is supposed to make you trust that the person is telling you the truth because, well, they love dear old mom so much and that if they broke their word, well, then something bad would happen to mom. And that's just unthinkable. So you're supposed to trust them when they say that. But here, Jesus argues that these formulas used in making a promise are totally irrelevant, and the distinction between formulas which mention God and those that do not, they're artificial. Today, you and I, we probably don't find ourselves making vows in God's name, but do you ever find yourself beginning a sentence with a phrase like, honestly, let me tell you. Anybody do that? I, I used to do that a lot, honestly. Or perhaps you hear people starting something by saying, if I can be straight with you for a minute. Like before this, they had a license to be devious because they didn't preface their speech. Now, we know that some of these things are just colloquial language. They're just informal (laughs) phrases that have unintentionally worked their way onto our lips. But the point that Jesus is making here is that his followers, they simply say, yes or no, and they mean it. The Christians are to be truth-tellers. We aren't obligated to be truthful because we swear to be truthful. We're obligated to be truthful because we opened our mouths to speak. I can recall moments as a young child when I didn't tell my parents the truth. Perhaps I told a lie or misrepresented what happened or omitted some details because I was fearful of the consequences of what I was getting in trouble for. But eventually, it all came out, as it always does. And I would remember my parents saying something along the lines of how hurt they were by my deception. By that, more than whatever the original infraction was that I was trying to cover up, by, you know, not telling the truth. Today, as a parent, I understand why my parents said that. You see, the problem when we lie, break our word, or don't follow through with our commitments to others is that what we're ultimately doing is breaking trust. And in turn, the broken trust, it fractures our relationships. And then the result is we don't have the righteousness the right relationships that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are supposed to have. And that's what Jesus came to restore. And this is what he wants his followers to preserve by speaking truthfully in all situations. Now, it can be difficult in many situations to be honest we may fear that our honesty will hurt our relationship with the other person, or we may be tempted in certain circumstances to make commitments to someone that we actually have no intention of fulfilling, hoping that they'll forget. But in the present moment, we make these commitments because it seems like it's the prudent thing to do. But lies and breaking these commitments are far more detrimental to our relationships than honesty offered in humility or by setting boundaries or limits on the commitments we make. A few weeks back, one of our young adults, James, he was sitting up here with Pastor Reese, and James was telling us about his story, his his life, his journey, and his walk with Jesus. And Reese asked James, you know, what advice would you give us for how we could live out our faith? And immediately James said, be honest. Just be honest with one another. It can be hard, but that's what we need to do. And I just thought, those are wise words. Not only does honesty give us credibility to our witness, but it maintains good relationships. Our relationships require regular honesty if they are to be maintained. Now I want to go back to the first principle that Jesus addresses in the passage we're dealing with today, with divorce, Divorce was not only a hot topic in Jesus' day, but it's been a hot topic throughout the years in churches as well. In verse 31, Jesus alludes to the scribal law, saying that you have heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now this is a quote, uh, it's an adaption from Deuteronomy 24.1, which is the only law in the first five books of, of the Old Testament dealing with divorce and remarriage. It stated that if a married man, because only men at that time were able, had the right to divorce, if they found something objectionable about their wife, he could give her a certificate of divorce. And this, this certificate, it's actually very significant because this would make it possible for the woman to remarry, and marriage was one of the only ways that a woman back then could find security. In Jesus' day, there were two main schools of thought when it came to interpreting this law from Deuteronomy 24. One school of thought was led by Rabbi Shammai, the other by Rabbi Hillel. Hillel had a very permissive view of the law. And when it came to divorce, he taught that this passage in Deuteronomy, it provided a man who wanted to be divorced from his wife the right to do so for any reason whatsoever, including a wife's most trivial offenses. She might be an incompetent cook and burn the toast, and he could give her a certificate of divorce. A husband could find her wife his wife no longer attractive, and according to Hillel, he would be justified to give her a divorce certificate. On the other hand, Rabbi Shammai, he took a stricter line and he taught that the only grounds for divorce was a serious matrimonial offense such as adultery. Now you can guess which interpretation that the Pharisees and scribes preferred. They liked Hallels. They liked the more permissive one. And we see in Matthew 19, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, an encounter that they have with Jesus to find out what side He is on, beginning at verse 3. It says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. that Jesus, he's planting himself in Rabbi Shammai's camp, reiterating what we see here in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is firmly against divorce. In verses 4 to 6 of Matthew 19, he explains that God designed marriage to be a permanent situation and that once it is entered into, it should only be separated by death. And that is because one of the main purposes of marriage is that it is a metaphor for God's relationship with his people. So one of the main purposes of marriages is the metaphor for God's relationship with his people. And this relationship is founded on promises to be faithful, devoted, and loyal to one another. Us to God and him to us. And this promise between God and his people is known as a covenant, and like a marriage, it is intended to last our entire lives. However... We humans, we struggle to keep our commitments to faithfulness to God and to one another. And so Jesus says that God allowed Moses to permit the Israelites to divorce because their hearts were hard. That was the problem. Hard hearts. And this is still the problem today. The very problem Jesus came to address. And hard hearts... It's each of our problem, whether it's anger, lust, divorce, or lying. All of these things are awful, but they are just the symptoms of the disease. They are just the bad fruit, the consequences of the root problem. All of these terrible things, they stem from hard hearts. Humanity is broken. We are sick with sin that has given us a heart condition that is fatal. And it's not just killing you and me, but it is also deadly to all of our relationships. And my hard heart, it causes me to be selfish and self-centered. My hard heart causes me to look out For number one, it tempts me in all types of ways to exaggerate or be deceptive in my speech, to neglect my relationships, because they're often more difficult or costly than I am prepared to deal with. I am tempted to meet my own needs and desires without considering how it affects others or even without caring. The reality that Scripture reveals is this. I am sick, and so are you. We need a physician, and thank God he sent one because Jesus came to heal each of us from this fatal heart condition. A couple weeks ago, I quoted the prophet Ezekiel where the Lord spoke to him, and I'm going to quote it again. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, Jesus came to do a heart transplant, to heal us, to repair the broken relationship that we have with God, and that happens when we place our trust in Him by repenting and turning from our own ways and following Him as the Lord of our lives. But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that that's just the beginning of what Jesus has come to do in our lives. That once he has put his spirit in us, once he has given us these new hearts and our relationship with God has been restored, well, then Christ passes the torch on to us and he gives each of us the mission of writing our broken relationships. Jesus puts us on the path towards righteousness. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. That's the heart transplant. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This ministry, it goes beyond just married couples or those who have been divorced. Whether you are married or single, divorced or widowed, we are all required To mend our broken relationships and to do the hard work of relationship maintenance, which requires faithfulness and honesty. But before we go on, I just wanna pause for a moment and say something. I said earlier that Jesus is firmly against divorce, and he is. But almost every divorced person I know feels the same way that Jesus does. They're firmly against divorce, too. I don't think anybody who sets out in marriage, like they set out intending to get divorced. And though I think most churches have come a long way in showing compassion and care to people who have experienced divorce, many people, including children of divorced parents, have been hurt by insensitive or ignorant remarks and actions within the church surrounding the topic of divorce. And so to those of you who have experienced divorce and have been profoundly impacted by it, I want to apologize if any church or Christians have ever made you feel stigmatized or ostracized because of the brokenness that you have experienced and your families have experienced with you. So Jesus may be firmly against divorce, but there is no doubt doubt. He is for you. Yesterday, a friend of mine shared a quote with me. He heard it said, God hates divorce, but God loves you more than he hates divorce. I was like, yeah, that is so true. Jesus welcomes all all those who have been impacted by divorce. He loves you, forgives you, can heal and restore you, and there is nothing that can separate any one of us from the love of God, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And as brothers and sisters, forgive us if we have ever made you feel separated or condemned. Though Jesus highlights divorce in these verses all of us can fail to maintain righteousness in any of our relationships. Perhaps your broken relationship is with a different member of your family, not your spouse. Maybe it's a parent or a child or a sibling, and you're done with them. You just cannot wait to get them out of your hair or out of your life. Maybe it's a friend or a coworker, or gasp. Maybe it's somebody at church. But Jesus calls all of us to be righteous in all of our relationships. And this isn't negotiable. And so these relationships will require ongoing care and nurture. Maintenance that's characterized by faithfulness and honesty. There's not one single relationship that any of us have that is maintenance-free. No one has the perfect marriage or friendship or even church family. And all of these require work, loads of forgiveness, and grace. So I want to go back to my illustration I used at the beginning of my message about my vehicle and the three types of maintenance that it required. Because I think that we can also implement these into our relationships as well. There was routine, preventative, and urgent maintenance. So when it comes to our relationships, it requires routine or regular maintenance. These are daily practices that support healthy relationships. Routine maintenance requires honest communication. It means listening well and quality intentional time together. It requires us to regularly confess sin or wrongdoing and to extend forgiveness. You know, I, I, too often, I get frustrated with my boys, particularly around like, being on time for things, right? So we're in the car, and then I have to turn and apologize to them and say, I'm sorry. I got more frustrated than I should. I was wrong. And they used to say, oh, it's, it's okay. And then I would have to say to them, actually, it's not. That's why I'm apologizing to you. And then they picked up on it. They're like, oh. We forgive you, Dad. That's hard sometimes, but that's a part of regular routine maintenance in our relationship. In in this kind of maintenance, we also need to include praying together if we can, but also putting an end to anything that might be hindering these relationships. And then we have preventative maintenance. These are practices that safeguard our relationship from potential threats. And one of the signs that we need to do this kind of preventative maintenance in our relationships is when we realize we have lingering resentments, things we just cannot let go. Or perhaps there's constant miscommunications. I think it's then we need to take time and stop and assess what are my own expectations or your own expectations in the relationship. And doing this kind of relationship checkup it's pretty essential, and I think, you know, we can do it when we recognize these signs, but I think we should also uh, do this kind of assessment when it appears like everything on the surface is fine. Everything's hunky-dory. There's, there's no fighting. There's no arguments. But, you know, sometimes it can be the lack of conflict in a relationship that's actually a sign that maybe there is a problem here. I remember when my aunt and uncle got divorced many, many years ago. A few years after, I asked my cousin, I said, well, was there constant fighting in the home? She said, no, Dave, it was way worse than that. They weren't communicating at all. And for us as children, the silence was deafening. Preventative relational maintenance, it requires us also to take time to intentionally connect. Again, this goes beyond just living together or coexisting with another person, whether it's your family or your housemates or whatever. It means really connecting with one another. It means giving space for other people also that you trust to speak into your life about how you're doing at maintaining your relationships. And these people should not just be your cheerleaders people who always take your side and always tell you how great you are we need people in our lives who will be honest with us enough they love us enough to tell us where we're falling short uh reese talked last week at the end of his message about the need for accountability partners or friendships in our lives i've been fortunate enough i have a friend named Tim, he's been in my life for 20-plus years, and we meet together and we share with one another our victories, but also our struggles and failures. And uh, we're also, we talk to each other about our relationships, whether it's with our marriages or our children, or even, we're both in ministry, even with our churches. And, you know, Tim, he is more than willing to tell me when I have failed, He's more than willing to tell me, like, nope, Dave, when it comes to this thing at church, you're the one who's in the wrong. And it sucks hearing that. It's hard. But I am so grateful and thankful that he loves me enough to tell me those things. Because it helps me to see them as they are and to know when I need to do the humble work of changing myself. So we need those kind of relationships in our lives. And finally, preventative maintenance requires us to cease any action that might be hurting our relationships. And lastly, there's urgent maintenance. These are actions to rescue our relationships from the brink of destruction. And when it comes to urgent maintenance, particularly when it comes to them in our marriages or with our family members, this is when we need to seek professional help. We need to seek out a marriage or a family counselor. We also need to gather trusted people around us to support and pray for you. And this may be super uncomfortable because it requires a lot of vulnerability, but this is not the time for letting pride get in the way. And then finally, when it comes to urgent maintenance, we need to stop any behavior that's killing those relationships. So God wants us to do all that we can to preserve our relationships, to maintain them. Romans 12 says to us, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Unfortunately, this verse makes it clear that not every relationship we have will persevere or be reconciled because uh, even if we're committed to it, a relationship takes two people and if the other person isn't willing to work together, there's not much you can do about it. But Paul says, as far as it depends on me and you, Christ follower, we're going to do our best to work at it. For some of us, um, you know, and I just want to say about that as well, reconciliation doesn't mean things go back to the way they were. It doesn't, sometimes it can, it can, sometimes it can get better, but sometimes it means uh, you have to s- settle in the meantime for something else, living at peace with one another, not holding grudges anymore so we need to understand that reconciliation doesn't always mean, uh, you know, a fully restored relationship, at least maybe not in the immediate. For some of us, some of the things that might get in the way between restored relationship, it could be that feeling of that we were the one who was profoundly wrong, and this is a great obstacle that we have to overcome reconciliation with another person. I think we need to remember in those moments that it is Jesus who calls us to love and to forgive and to be peacemakers in every situation of disagreement and conflict, even if we were the ones who were wronged, even if the other person we believe is at fault. God forgave us though we were the ones at fault, and he did it through great cost and sacrifice, sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. But God also raised him from the dead by the power of his Holy Spirit, enabling us to have this relationship with him to be restored. And then God also offers you and I that same life giving power of the Spirit today to enable us to overcome whatever obstacles hinder our reconciliation. His Spirit empowers us to extend forgiveness or to be humble and offer an apology. And we may think our relationship with another person is as good as dead, that it's a complete write-off. But we are people who live with resurrection hope, right? Not only for ourselves, but for all of our relationships. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. And I'd like to invite you to stand with me. And I want to read from Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, you are holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Oh, thank you, Lord. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Father, we thank you for your love for us, and we pray that you would enable us to be people who reconcile our relationships. Would you safeguard uh, the relationships we have with people, and would you help us to work towards making them uh, as you would have us? In Jesus' name, amen.